Welcome, everyone, to episode 19 of Popcorn Peeps. This is the podcast in which we venture through the Hollywood Reporter's top 100 films of all time and give our thoughts along the way. In this episode, we will be discussing Peter Jackson's 2001 film adaptation of The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. This film is based on the written works of J.R.R. Tolkien. The film stars Elijah Wood, Ian McKellen, Sean Astin, Viggo Mortensen, and just like in Return of the King, about 200 others. Speaking of Return of the King, if you haven't already listened to Popcorn Peeps episode 14 featuring Return of the King, we will likely be glossing over some of the details that are pertinent to this film, but only because we've already spoken about them in this earlier episode. So if you haven't already listened to it, get to it. Go there, come back, we'll be waiting. However, without further ado, I am once again joined by the Fellowship of the Peeps, Sarah Alexander of Rohan. Hello, Jordan. Chris McMullen of Rivendell. Hi. And Craig Moore of Moria. <laughs> it was nice to finally go home. <laughs> Twice. <laughs> okay, well, to start, we're treated by a rather lengthy prologue. How do you guys feel this sets the tone of the film? And do you think it does a good job bringing the audience into Tolkien's universe? Are you talking about the Shire? No, I'm talking about the prologue. Oh, that whole... The, yeah, no, I thought that was good. Kind of made that one scene in Lord of the uh, Return of the Kings pointless. What one scene? The first half hour. Oh, <laughs> there <laughs> i understand why you say that chris but we harp on return of the king for itself not being able to stand alone as an individual movie and if you don't allow it to do that then you have yet another reason to attack it you can't have your cake and eat it too but we're not here to talk about return of the king we're here to talk about fellowship of the ring so the intro at the very beginning of the movie of the very first movie of this series it was necessary and i i liked it in so far that it did a good job of telling you a little bit of history about the world and what the stakes were and how we got to where we are my only problem with it was the same problem i had with a lot of this movie which is it was long and drawn out to the point where once it was done i was hyped that the prologue is over that we're ready to get into the movie and then there was another hour of prologue and i was like holy crap craig no the first hour and a half of this film was the best part of the whole film i wanted to live in the <laughs> I loved the first hour. I think the prologue is fantastic. It sets the tone so well. Kate Blanchett as Galadriel does an amazing job with the narration. The way she tells the story inspires fear and wonder. From moment one, the film says, hey, this is a fantasy, but it's not happy-go-lucky. It's not this fairy tale wonderland. It's this place with history and destruction and greed and bloodshed. And these factions are fighting for sovereignty and conquest. And I know prologues are super cliche, but in this case, I thought it set up what Tolkien world was really clear and it only took five minutes i thought it was quite exciting and even the prologue itself kind of has a beginning middle and an end and it's almost like it's whole self-contained little story that was only five minutes it was the longest five minutes of my life and i've planked <laughs> planked <laughs> get ready for seven samurai craig you're in for a treat Given the time that this story was originally written in, which was like 100 years ago now, I thought one of Galadriel's lines at the very beginning was really good when she said, much of what was is now lost for none now live who remember it. And I thought it was very poignant in that November 11th rolls around every year and we kind of do our, yeah, yeah, remember the troops thing and then immediately get on with our lives. Because that was the time that Tolkien wrote this story. And much of what was back then is now lost. I'm not going to be that that guy but november 11th is also the date halo reach came out and i remember that before i remember it's remembrance day sorry sarah i see you rolling your eyes don't downvote the <laughs> podcast just flame him in the comments <laughs> yeah <laughs> once we get a little bit of that history we finally get into the main sections of the film we're thrown into the shire gandalf just rides in we're there for bilbo's 111th birthday what are your takes on this first act of the film from the moment we enter to the shire to the moment we depart
part it. I liked it. It looks like a nice place to live. They were right to not get involved. I agree, Chris. I think it looked very peaceful. I would love to live there as well and just mind my own business. Something about Elijah Wood just creeps me out. I don't know what it is, but all the scenes where he's like just smiling and it zooms in on his face, oh, grinds my gears every time. <laughs> the eyes. I like that Elijah Wood had a little bit more life in him in this one. I understand why in Return of the King, he's very sullen. It wasn't a big difference, but he was a lot more jubilant in his relationships with some of the characters here, especially with Gandalf, especially with Sam. And I really enjoyed the contrast between just going from the last one back to the first one. It's a bit of a jump and you're like, holy smokes, you're right. Before everyone's like, oh my God, this is terrible. This is the worst time ever. I thought venturing back to the Shire was so therapeutic. You get to see the calm before the storm, all these big Baby hobbits are so cute and you have these yes. sea of vibrant green. There's a sense of innocence within Sam, Frodo, Merry, and Pippin. And this opening act really does a good job of establishing that. Merry and Pippin are so self-interested, unapologetic. And even like when they're shooting off the firework and they almost light the Shire on fire, they're like, let's do it again. Let's get another one. It's cool that you situate them like this because as the story goes on, they become more involved in the politics of the world, the wars of the world, and they really have to put on uh, <laughs> a sense of maturity, right? And you get to see them right here at their most childlike, right? Or selfish or self-interested. And Jeez. it's a great point because it really establishes the character development you see later on. I thought it was a good starting point for a lot of these characters. I think it does a good job mostly in spending time introducing us to characters who matter and not wasting our time introducing us to characters who do not. One thing that I found lacking, and if you've listened to the previous episode, I'm just going to mention this real quick. Sauron is introduced as a big bad evil guy, and that's all he is. Doesn't go to any lengths and try to explain to us who he is. And at the end of all three movies, it doesn't really end up mattering who he is. He's just the bad guy. Totally fair, because you have like sub-villains for this film, right? It's not about Sauron, it's about Saruman, it's about the Nazgul in particular. And so that big bad is just kind of tucked away for a later date. And I think that's good because there's a lot of exposition and it's not necessarily needed to whip it all out right here. There already is enough. So I think if they really laid into Sauron from the start, it would just be too much. Absolutely. And I think they did a great job introducing Sauron. In my opinion, a much more interesting villain. It's like the mini boss is more interesting than the big boss. It never happens. I, I felt the same way with the Nazgul. They're menacing, relentless. Imagine something that doesn't sleep, doesn't eat, and all it mm -hmm. does is hunt you. Every moment you're sitting down, they're like, it's looking for me. And the armor and whatnot, it's so cool. And then you get to the eyeball, and I'm like, this isn't as cool. So what? So he's a building? <laughs> I mean, I still think the eye is cool, but I really think the mini boss in this case is better than the big bad. Bin Laden could have solved this one with a 747. <laughs> See, I'm in trouble for this, but Craig gets away with this? What is double standard? Oh my gosh. This beginning part of the film too really establishes a character we didn't get to see in Return of the King. Um, Christopher Lee? Oh, it's slipping. It's fine. I'll just ignore it. Are you looking for Boromir? Sean Bean? Oh, no. I'd also like to mention that Ian Holm does an incredible job playing Bilbo in the first act. The way he bounces off Gandalf, the two feel like they have been buds forever and they're finally getting a chance to reconnect, crack open a beer, smoke some good shit, and really reminisce. I felt nostalgic about their unity and I wasn't even there for any of it. So I just think that's a great job and it really uh, is important because when Bilbo and Gandalf fight over 
over the ring, it really shows how powerful the ring is because they go from this, this really deep friendship to they're at odds and it's all because of this ring. And this is a great job foreshadowing what this ring is gonna do to the rest of our cast, our younger cast, as they go venture out and are exposed to it. It's a, it's a good oh shit moment right at the beginning. It reminded me of a friend confronting another friend who has an addiction. And everybody in the world would do well to have a friend like Gandalf. And it would be nice if every addict in the world reacted the same way Bilbo did, which was listen to his friend and go, whoa, shit, you're right. Yeah, I wish my head intervention had gone better. <laughs> What I also liked about this first half is the forced perspective that gave us the height differences between Gandalf and all of the hobbits. I thought that was really well done in a way that wasn't CGI. And then I think later on in the film, when you do see the more fake differences, it looks obviously fake. But when you're in the Shire and you're in the house, the camera angles are done so well just to give it that look when they're together. And even the camera angles, when it's Gandalf alone, it's always looking up at him, which does give him the height. But I think it all also shows his authority, which is done really well. And it reminded me of Citizen Kane. I haven't seen Citizen Kane yet. I'm not allowed to watch Citizen Kane because it's on the list. You will. <laughs> I agree. I think it's really well done. There's some cool cinematography tricks in the film, and that's definitely one of them. Also, like to make a quick point about Sam here. At this beginning section, the first cut we see of Sam, he's staring at the girl he marries at the end of The Return of the King. And I never noticed that before. And I thought that was immaculate mm -hmm. attention to detail uh, on behalf of Jackson and his team that I didn't even notice until now. And I've seen this film a gazillion times. I mean, for what it's worth, Peter Jackson didn't come up with that. Tolkien did. Thanks, Tolkien. I appreciate it. Cool. So after we leave the Shire, we enter phase two of the film that stretches from this point until the formation of the Fellowship in Rivendell. What do you guys think about this chunk? Venturing off our first adventure. First step out of the Shire for Sam. Meeting Strider. <sighs> <laughs> Did Viggo Mortensen seem like he was a better actor in this film? Yes. I don't know if it was just because he didn't feel regal and he matched the tone of Strider better, this lone warrior, gruff and tough. And I thought he did a way better job. I was surprised. I'm like, do I need to watch Return of the King again no. and just see if I'm losing my marbles? No, you don't, I no, assure you. I, I agree, Jordan. It's number one on my list. You know I'm going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I thought he was a lot better in this one. And I don't know if it's just because we're getting to know the character. So maybe there was more for him to work with than Return of the King, where he's already the king of Gondor. We know he's going to be and he has more responsibility. He becomes a more boring character. Yeah, I liked this rough and tumble. I don't know if we got a thing for the bad boys, but when he's sitting there hunchback with his cloak on and the prancing pony, I'm like, that's a good look, boy. Right as we get into this section, as Sam and Frodo and co are in the Prancing Pony, we have Gandalf meeting with Saruman in what I think is one of the franchise's worst fight scenes ever. I think the dialogue is good, but when they start swinging their staffs around and they're just like, they're very quick cuts and people are just like flying left and right doing ballerina twirls and pirouettes. I'm like, really? This is how you're gonna introduce us to Lord of the Rings combat? <laughs> I think this is the second best old man fight on the list so far, just below up. Oh, yes. <laughs> I agree. I roasted up and this is a worse fight. This is a worse fight than up. <laughs> I just think, okay, these are grand. These are the some of the greatest wizards in the land. What crazy Some of the most shit. powerful people who have ever existed. And they're like, okay, this is, wait, wait, this is an audio podcast. Okay, I gotta, yeah. <laughs> I gotta stop doing what I'm doing. 
And the fact that Gandalf wastes four moves trying all of the doors, like he's not going to shut them like he did the first one. Like he could have done anything in that time, but he's like, oh, I'll go this way then. Oh, this way. I think this fight exemplifies some of the problems that I have throughout the movie in general, which is you've shown me once, you don't need to keep showing me. You know, a lot of these long extra shots that feel like filler and unnecessary, like, yeah, I get it. You know, yeah, the first door closed and then the second door closed. Maybe I'll give you the second one. I don't need to watch all, all the doors closed. I don't need to watch this old man get hit on the floor four times. I don't need a 15 second long shot of an old man carrying two sticks. Like, just let's get to the payoff here. <laughs> Chris made a similar comment in Return of the King where he's like, do I need to see nine beacons be lit? No. I was just thinking about that, but I didn't want to bring it up. <laughs> but that was cool. Yeah, that was cooler than this. This old man fight was not doing it for me. Yeah. I really don't have anything else to say that's memorable other than I really enjoyed the interactions with the Nazgul, but I talked about that a little bit already, just the costuming and how menacing they are. I, I have a question. Sure. Why did the Nazgul have their worm birds? I wondered that too. Were they trying to be sneaky or were the worm birds not dug out of the earth yet in Saruman's war pit? I don't know. We'll ask Travis. I think they do say in the movie that they're disguised as riders or something like that. Like Awful disguise, <laughs> but... Disguise. Your horse has blood red eyes. It looks like a demon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this horse that goes slow and has red eyes, not a great disguise. I'm just a rider. Where's your face? (laughs) What are you, the face police? (laughs) (laughs) I don't really have anything else to note until we get to Rivendell. And I know we dunked on the lackluster romance between Aragorn and Arwen in Return of the King. But to be completely honest, the foundation in this film for that romance is super good. I love what it established. And Jackson just seemed to fail to deliver on it. You got this really cool premise where Arwen is willing to relinquish eternal life to be with Aragorn and it's very touching and Aragorn loves her but struggles with the idea that a life by his side isn't worth such a tremendous sacrifice and this is great and there's some really good scenes with them and I thought they were very enjoyable and like scratching my head now as to how I went from oh I would love to learn more about this to when I watched the other films what the fuck is going on this is terrible (laughs) did you guys feel the same way because I know we all dunked on the romance yeah they did her dirty the romance was better in this film yes a lot better it actually showed a little bit of chemistry between the two characters characters she sneaks up on him and is kind of intending to like you know just play with him a little bit and then before she realized there's a serious situation and then he shows us how much he trusts her when he gives her Frodo and says go get help right because like Aragorn knows what's up with the ring and all this stuff he knows what's at stake and he's trusting her with not only his life but the entire fate of Middle Earth yeah absolutely and if you look at the faces of Merry and Pippin they're like what are you doing with Frodo yeah and he's just like I got this boy what are you doing just giving them to this random elf and saying like good luck i agree and i think it's cool and at that moment you can already see that like they have this really personal interaction and there's clearly a layer of trust there that you can kind of already set as a foundation before building on it later on in rivendell and then our payoff for the entire romance is her hiding behind a banner and then doing a peekaboo at the end of the whole series (laughs) like okay whiff is that the next time we see her no no she's in some like memory clips and stuff i think there's some flashbacks i also want to make a comment about how great it is that the fellowship is so antagonistic when it's first formed boromir cares nothing for them all he cares about is his family and gondor a kingdom he basically hijacked anyway gimli would rather die than see the ring in the hands of an elf etc in the similar sense that a lot of the hobbits were so innocent and they could build from that and grow from that i think it's cool that the fellowship forms in such an unconventional 
intentional and uh, confrontational manner and then has so much room to kind of grow as we as we explore all of our different adventures and the characters develop and whatnot. So I'm going to ask you guys a question and I'll ask our listeners to throw in their opinions of it. Why did Frodo volunteer? Did Frodo volunteer out of courage or a sense of responsibility or was he manipulated by the ring to not let it go to someone else? I think manipulated because he's a coward. Is he a coward? He gets better, but he's a coward. Like he, you know, he rises above it eventually. But the interactions you see in the, especially the first few battles, you got Pippin and Sam and uh, the other one. They're right (laughs) in there fighting and he's kind of hiding. Yeah, fair argument. That's interesting. I've never thought of that before. I'd like to think it was just because he saw everybody fighting and he's like, I'll just do it. But now that you think about it and the way when Gimli hit the axe, like it caused him pain. I think, yeah, he was drawn to it. He was manipulated. I agree. I think he was definitely manipulated. I think it's a little bit of both because Frodo seems like someone who's very non-confrontational. And so seeing the struggle during that meeting, I think it made him really uncomfortable and he knew that he could claim it as a solution to make that problem go away. So I think that's also a part of it as well. I tend to think he was manipulated by the ring. My theory about this entire story is that it's a story about how evil will always fuck itself over in the end. And I think that this is one of the poor decisions that the ring made that led to its own destruction. I agree. I also really like the symmetry between the nine Nazgul, the kings of men, and the nine protectors of the ring. It's kind of cool to kind of lay it out like that. It's a little bit poetic, but that being said, if this was a sporting match and I was picking teams as a team captain, I'd probably pick two Nazgul on my team instead of Mary and Pippin. Just saying. I think I just take nine Nazgul. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me right? too. <laughs> well, you would lose. We're already down a man by the end of this movie. <laughs> Did anyone yeah. go, oh yeah, Sean Bean's in this movie. I wonder how long it takes until he dies. Yeah. I think Sean Bean does a great job. He's great, but he dies in absolutely every movie he's in. It's disappointing how much he dies. And in something like this, where we have to watch another two movies without him in it. I love that, though. I love pulling that punch early because a lot of shows, like these characters have big plot armor. And then if someone's going to die, it's going to be at the end. And then it's going to get wrapped up 15 minutes later. But to throw him under the bus this early on, I think was probably, it's been so long since I've seen it for the first time, but I'm sure it would have been a shock. When someone tried to sell Game of Thrones to me, they said it's like Lord of the Rings, but everybody dies. And I wasn't sure what they were watching because in Lord of the Rings, Gandalf and Sean Bean are gone in like one episode. I like that Boromir provides a point of conflict for Frodo and Aragorn. He's abrasive and he shows firsthand some of the decision making that resulted in the creation of the Nazgul in the first place and the prolification of the Ring of Power. Aragorn may be the heir of Isildur, but Boromir really seems to bear a more striking resemblance to him. He's following all of those same Mm. mistakes that men made to get us into this situation in the first place and I I think that's a nice touch from a story perspective but does this possibly and maybe I'm reading a little bit too much into it I know people have dissected Tolkien to death but is it possible that because Boromir has lived a life of in combat with Mordor keeping the orcs at bay that he's at a point in his war-torn life where he's just looking for any edge regardless of how corrupt and evil an edge is he just wants the war to be over with and he's willing to do anything to justify that end right the ends justifies the means i guess is what i'm trying to say for boromir but for aragorn he's looking at it from the five mile view saying no we can't go that route i think boromir is just naive and he just doesn't understand the situation he would be throwing himself into he would probably say the same thing about aragorn that aragorn's being naive well aragorn has history to show that this ring can do but he's not a leader i'm not disagreeing with you jordan i think that 
Boromir is being naive. He's believing something without any evidence to believe it. He just wants it to be true. He wants to believe that he could use the ring to take down Mordor. But I think Boromir would say Aragorn is being naive in choosing to destroy the ring instead of using it. Is Occam's razor right or wrong here? <laughs> is the simplest solution right? Do we just pick it up and start swinging people with a mace? I think you're right. And it's just a different set of perspectives. Aragorn has been on his own this whole time and he's not in the fray. And so he doesn't understand the urgency maybe that Boromir feels and the need to pick this up right away and defend himself and utilize it and protect these women and children and these families that live within the walls of Gondor. Is it just me or does uh, Frodo get stabbed a lot? <laughs> he does. He's a level one character in a level 25 yeah. dungeon. I'd also like to make one note about Boromir. He gave us one of the greatest memes <laughs> in meme history. The one does not simply one does not simply <laughs> listen to popcorn peeps one does not simply listen to popcorn peeps without arguing with everything jordan says <laughs> This movie has so many great memes. It's even giving us great memes 20 years later. The scene with Isildur in the ring where he goes, no, no, destroy it. No. Yeah. I have no memory of this place dot meme. Yeah. And Bilbo's like, why shouldn't I keep it? And that one just blew up last year. So it's crazy that this 20 year old movie is still so entrenched in popular culture. Well, it's three hours long. <laughs> there's tons of content to meme. Yeah, but there's a billion movies out there and all of a sudden people just keep plucking new ones from this. It's like Spongebob. It's going to get memed until the end of human history. It made a billion dollars. For what it's worth, Jordan was the one that compared Lord of the Rings to Spongebob, not me. So don't blame <laughs> me this episode. Once we leave Rivendell, we follow the Fellowship through the Mines of Moria and the Elven territory of Lothlorien. This is the only time in the trilogy that the entire Fellowship quests together. What do you guys think of these adventures? Number one, I don't understand. It certainly seemed like Gandalf knew what happened in the Mines of Moria. I don't understand why when Gimli said, hey, let's go through Moria, he didn't say, uh, yeah, fuck that. There's a bunch of orcs and a Balrog down there. <laughs> so I think maybe we just do the mountain pass instead. That's number one. Number two, why was the entrance to the Mines of Moria, the riddle, written in Elvish? Don't the dwarves hate the elves? Why would they put like way markers for like Moria this way, but write it in Elvish? Maybe all of the small people died and the elves sealed the Balrog in. Mm -hmm. Maybe, maybe. I don't know. I'm just throwing things out there. The dwarves? Well, all of the dwarves in Moria died and maybe the elves came and they're like, You just called them small people. So I was just saying like their race was- I couldn't remember what a dwarf was. I'm sorry. I had to think of something. <laughs> So if I'm an elf and I just finished sealing a Balrog into the mines of Moria, the entrance to the door, I don't write speak friend and enter. I write fucking Balrog. <laughs> Get the fuck out. <laughs> Beware of Balrog. Oh, also and the Kraken. Beware of yeah. the Kraken. Yeah. And look out behind you because there's a Kraken in the water. Like don't, why are you here? There should be way markers all the way up, like danger, Kraken <laughs> and Balrog ahead. Like, what is going on? After we leave Rivendell, this is actually the first time in the film where it really loses my interest for a bit. Until now, the core group has been operating for the sole purpose of bringing the ring to Elrond, and it feels concise and it feels focused. But once we get to this point, there's a lot of meandering. Like, to get into Moria, they're like, this way won't work, this way won't work. And what blows my mind most is, as you said, Gandalf knows what's in there, but he doesn't say anything to anyone and you know who has the final decision frodo who has no clue the guy who's never been outside of his front 
front door. <laughs> Frodo, you don't know what the fuck is going on. Should we go in the place? <laughs> Without telling him anything? I'm like, Gandalf, what the fuck are you doing? They'd just be like, hey, uh, Frodo, what do you think's better? Wading through waist-deep snow or fighting a fucking six-story tall Balrog made of fire and shadow <laughs> and death and 800,000 orcs? He's 20 feet tall with a flame sword. Like, he's just like, what are you just like keeping that secret in your back pocket for later? <laughs> Yo, Frodo, I know you're cold. I know you're cold, but the flame sword is worse. Trust me. <laughs> but I think the alternative would be uh, having them walk through snow for 25 minutes. So uh, maybe Gandalf knew. As a Canadian, I'm okay with walking through the snow. <laughs> Tolkien could have just made snow more interesting. I mean, us having to watch them walk for 25 minutes. Oh, he was doing it on our behalf. Yeah, he knew. Well, then shout out to my boy Gandalf. <laughs> Thanks, because there was enough of those shots in this movie. Because that was like my favorite part like the whole mine is my favorite part once you get into moria it's great the atmosphere is sick the troll fight is awesome and the balrog is so cool that's one of my favorite beasts in all of fantasy not even just lord of the rings the design is so cool so once we're in there it's great i just felt like getting in there was a clusterfuck i love that we got to see gandalf yet again be the most powerful but least useful member of the party this is mo <laughs> he's like a level 60 wizard who hasn't read readied any spells did you notice the difference between Gandalf the Grey and Gandalf the White? Watching Return of the King and then watching Fellowship of the Rings, I really noticed the difference between the Grey and the White. He's way more fun. He's kind of clumsy. Absolutely. The character is totally different. It's because he loves the Hobbit leaf. When that god resurrects him, he's like, listen here, you dumb fuck. You lay off the pipe and you fucking do something this time. <laughs> also, his magic was more fun. He did the little fireworks in his hand. That was pretty cool. The fireworks he brought, right? And that's why they did all the magic stuff. Yeah. All of his stuff seemed more rooted in like a physical, like like adding something yeah. to physical stuff. And then in the second one, it's just pure magic that sucks. Like when you're a teenager and you're fooling around and you're doing donuts in yeah, your yeah. car and you're getting into trouble and you're drinking and no one knows. And then reality hits you. You get a job. You got to tighten the tie a little bit. You got to behave yourself. This is just mature middle-aged Gandalf after the Balrog takes him down. Before then, right. reckless teenage Gandalf. That's really the way it's, it seemed. It was great. And I don't even know why. Because he spends 50,000 years in the shadow or something. I'm going to quote my boy Chris McMullen here. Wasn't in the movie. Not going to worry about it. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Best line in the whole film. What? Fool of a Took? Nobody tosses a dwarf. Run, you fools. No, it's toss yourself in next time and yeah. Yeah. rid us of your stupidity. I love that. <laughs> so good. Run, you fools is an amazing quote. And then he just lets go. And as he falls, little thing for Guillermo, he went into like a cruciform shape. Did you notice that? No, I didn't. Yeah, as he's falling, he puts his arms out like uh, he's being crucified. Oh, I thought that was so he could catch his sword and kill the Balrog, get all the experience points and the loot. Anyway, after we exit the Mines of Moria, we're treated to Lothlorien, and it's a total snooze fest. The venture just seems really insignificant, and at this point, we're two hours into the movie. Galadriel shows up. Some of the worst special effects choices I've ever seen. Oh yeah, she looks really bad. She goes full Bruce Banner, turns green when she gets angry, tempted by the ring, and all we get out of it is a fucking light potion. Yeah. Am I in the wrong here? I just felt like this sucked. No. It was really bad. She looked like Mr. Burns when he takes his treatments <laughs> like that's that's all I saw when we were in the elf city and everybody's you know taking a nap or whatever and I wanted to too but so I touched the remote and I saw and I would like to quote myself at this point in the movie holy fuck there's still an hour to go 
I did that too. There was a point where I thought, it's almost over, right? Like, we gotta be getting towards the end of this sucker. Oh god, no. And this is one of the reasons why I really like Return of the King as the definitive movie, is because everything feels so cohesive and connected. This feels like a string of side quests. We're hopping on one adventure to the next, and we get a new bunch of characters and a new setting, whereas the other films in this series feel like singular units, whereas this very much felt like it was like a Netflix show, where you could have divvied this up into 40-minute chunks, and it would have almost been a better experience. I think one of the big problems I had with the film in general was its overuse of slow motion shots. Oh, they were terrible! So it was a long movie, and the slow motion shots made it seem even longer than it was. Not even that. They reduced the frame rate to like six frames per second, and it was jarring yeah. looking at some of the scenes. When Frodo gets stabbed by the troll, they zoom in on his face, and he's like... Yeah, it's like a slideshow, like a PowerPoint. It's like a slideshow. Yeah, and that happens again when the Orokai leader and yeah. Legolas make eye contact on the boat just after they leave Gladriel. I don't, I don't understand the choice at all. Was this before the red camera came out? <laughs> 2001? I probably. I just felt like it would have been a better choice to just omit them entirely. It just stuck out like a sore thumb. And then Boromir gets a little too handsy with Frodo and Saruman's army, led by the Orokai, ambushes the party. I really liked this ending, not because we lost Sean Bean, that was actually really sad, but just even the way it was shot where you see that Orokai coming up, menacing in the background, and then he just pulls it back, and you're thinking, oh, hopefully he dodges it, and he just doesn't again and again. And I really liked it for Sean Bean's character, Boromir, because um, I thought it, like he did fight right till the end, and he did try to redeem himself in a way for what he did to Frodo. I thought it was really well done. Yeah, totally. When I watched it the first time, I thought the ending should have been after Gandalf died because I hated the elf part in the middle but then I was glad to see the ending with Boromir I thought that was better we could have just skipped that yeah I think that was a natural ending I agree with you Sarah coming out of the minds of Moria was the natural time to end scene that that part of the movie felt like it and I honestly think that they probably could have just cut out the entire part with Galadriel's people I know it was in the book and it was important and actually you know with the story of Lord of the Rings, there were some important things ha that happened in that scene that we didn't actually see, so there was no point in having it. But it was important for continuity for the people who'd read the books and whatever. But for us as viewers who are just judging the movie based on its own merits, eh, could have cut that whole section and just got us into the fight with, with Urukai. She could have met up with them and like, hey, I've got some stuff for you. Here you go, bye-bye. Yeah, congratulations on beating the Balrog. Here's the dungeon loot. <laughs> <laughs> You know what, actually, I really liked Boromir's character, and I feel like killing him here was a waste. I would have loved to see more out of this character for the, the rest of the series. What more would you want to see? I feel like that was his whole arc. He changed his mind, right? He didn't have a king, and he doesn't care about anything, and Gondor doesn't need you. What would have been really good is in The Return of the King, if the city was divided over who's going to follow the steward and who's going to follow Aragorn, if Boromir stood up as the chosen son, the favorite son of the steward, and said, I'm throwing my lot in with the king, and was the deciding vote that united all of men together to say, I know he's my father, but he's wrong, I'm following the king. Boromir speaks very highly of his father, and then when we get to see his father, ooh, that man not very good. Yes, that sucks. <laughs> I think he hadn't been corrupted as much yet, or the last time he saw him. Yeah, I think it was actually news of Boromir death that kind of pushed him over the edge true the one thing that bugged me and i'm curious what you guys think there are two scenes one that's like a joyful reunion and one that's like after the um mines where the soundtrack is totally over them being all uh, one time being happy and reuniting and the other time being sad did not like them at all 
Do you remember those? A lot of the music in this movie is an absolute 12 out of 10. I'm not saying the music itself, but how it was shot, where the soundtrack covered everything. You didn't even hear like their voices. Or- oh, oh I, I hear what you're saying. But I think the whole point was that the music was supposed to convey the emotion that the characters were feeling. No, no, I get it. I just thought it was heavy handed and gross. Uh, it was a little bit heavy handed, but I mean, what in Lord of the Rings isn't heavy handed, to be honest. I thought it was on brand. <laughs> we're like the characters who are good enter the scene with glowing <laughs> veils and the evil characters have bright red eyes. I'm like, yeah, this is this is Lord of the Rings. This is this is consistent with the themes, but I understand what you're saying. All right. I have a question for you, Chris. Given that the king and the steward's son were out there scrapping the Urukai in this movie instead of just legions of unnamed peasant soldiers. Yep. How did you feel about the combat? I liked it a lot more. It was funny. That's the other thing I was thinking about the whole way through. This was the ones who have been given the privilege paying like their responsibility. It was a big difference for me than unnamed thousands dying for a distraction. Yeah, that did. I was thinking about that. Thank you for remembering. This is a much more personal story. Yep. Very character focused as opposed to politically focused. And yeah, you definitely get that. I think it's cool to see. And I think it justifies... Oh, I don't know if I want to say this. I think it may justify a little bit of their kind of distancing in later films if they've already proven that they're willing to go and fight on the battlefield in instances like this. You can disagree, agree, whatever. I would disagree only because I feel like this film sets personal stakes. We saw Boromir die, and that's a person who died, right? He was one-ninth of the fellowship, and that broke our hearts when it happened. Mm -hmm. And then in future films, we see 100 people die. The stakes are already set in that we only care about nine people in the film and two of them are already gone. So like, we don't even care anymore. We would watch a hundred people die. We don't give a shit. Mm -hmm. It's true. On the subject of music, uh, once again, done by Howard Shore, felt like the music of this film was better than Return of the King, but I'm probably wrong and I'm hesitant to say it because I know a lot of the themes are reoccurring, but I just felt like I enjoyed it more. Maybe we had more Shire tunes. Maybe that was it. Here's the thing about the the music is I, I like the music, but unfortunately I feel like it's over shadowed because it's being used to keep us entertained while it's showing us these grand beautiful shots of the mountains that are neat when you see it but like I could just watch someone's vacation photos I don't need a three-hour film of it and there's just a music soundtrack behind it and the music's good but my god if I just wanted to listen to the soundtrack I'd put the soundtrack on Spotify right half this movie was listening to music while watching someone's vacation photos this is our third movie for Howard Sure. So he's on here for the Return of the King and also Seven and now Fellowship. So he is in our lead for composers. He was in Seven? He did Seven. What a Chad. Chris has to like the music now. No, I don't. Now he's conflicted. No, I'm not. No. Good job on Seven. (laughs) Meh. On Lord of the Rings. Before we rank this film, I'm going to throw it over to Sarah for some rapid fire facts. So apparently Viggo Martinson is a diehard Habs fan and he wore a Habs t-shirt underneath his Aragorn costume during the entire filming and this is because where he grew up in northern no, new york he's the greatest hab <laughs> all he had was the canadian radio coming through <laughs> so it was the, all the habs games and his current partner is the actress who played the mom in pan's labyrinth so it ties those two movies together small world Well, let's rank this bad boy. If you're following along with the YouTube video, you can check the description for a list of all of our current rankings. But without further ado, Sarah, where are you going to place Fellowship of the Ring amongst the films we've seen so far? I'm going to place it in the ninth spot between Dr. Zhivago and Bonnie and Clyde. 
So where did you place Return of the King? Much higher, right? Number two. I just, this one felt longer for me. And in terms of epics, that's kind of what I compared it to. I like Dr. Zhivago better probably than this one. Just the parts that in this that felt long were, oh, and to start it off, I started out watching the extended version accidentally. <laughs> so that felt like a fucking nightmare <laughs> when I got two hours into it. <laughs> and you were still in the Shire. Yeah. We're all done. And we're like, Sarah, what'd you think? And she's like, what are you talking about? I'm still watching hobbits roll in the grass. <laughs> yeah. It felt long to me compared to Return of the King. I thought that was more seamless. And overall, I liked the story better. So yeah, ninth. I'm starting to wonder if you need both Sarah and I on this podcast, because I am also placing it in ninth between Up and Inception. I also put it in ninth. What? Isn't that crazy? Yeah, no. So for me, it's not as good as Bonnie and Clyde, but better than Die Hard. And to put that in perspective, Return of the King was 15. Wow. I was like, whoa, how do we even have 15? But this is episode 19. (laughs) We've got quite a few on that list. What do you guys think? Am I going to put it at ninth to make <laughs> it united as one? No, that's probably like number three or something. <gasps> nah, Craig. Craig, you think I'm going to put it at number three? You fucking idiot. I'm putting it at number four, <laughs> actually. <laughs> Below Inception and above Dr. Schmuck. <laughs> I still think it's really good. I think the first half of the film and the last 30 minutes are awesome. I think it does drag a little bit in that kind of like three quarter section. But in terms of fantasy, I still think this is fucking awesome. And there there isn't a ton of stuff that punches this hard in the genre. And I love the genre. So maybe a little biased in that aspect, but four. What are we going to watch next week, Chris? Next week, we're going to watch Amadeus, 1984 movie about Mozart. We're finally at a movie about music and I get to review it. (laughs) Uh, Hey, guess what's going to happen? Jordan won't like it. (laughs) Could you imagine? You can't stream this anywhere. Uh, it is like for free. I mean, like uh, with a membership, so you can buy it in all the big hitter stores or rent it. Apple, Google Play, YouTube, and Amazon. But there's nowhere in Canada that you can get it with a subscription. I'd like to give a shout out to all of those who support us on Patreon.com. There is a link at the top of the description if you would like to support the show, like Sarah Renier, Frank Costa, Travis Laporte, Ryan Saarinen, and Jim Wamsley. You guys are awesome, and we'll see you in the next episode. Bye bye. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Thank you.